You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 2nd, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Yes, and it was 12 years ago tomorrow that the James Randi Educational Foundation was officially founded and began by James Randi. Cool. Excellent. Really? Yep. Tomorrow's the happy birthday. J-Ref day. Happy, happy oh. J-Ref day. So it's been 12 years, huh? Mm-hmm. That's worth celebrating. As long as we've been around as the uh, Connecticut Skeptical Society and the NESS and Skeptics That's right. Guy. This is our 12th year, too, as the right. NESS. So we share an anniversary as far as 1996 yeah. goes with Randy. Check, so. That's right. Wow. Jay is away this week, so he won't be able to join us. Oh. And I'm away as well. I'm in California this week filming the, uh, this is the first day of shooting for the, the pilot of the Skeptologists. Details. How's Give me details. Going? Come on. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. So, you know, it's, it's fun just hanging out with everybody. You know, Phil Plate, Michael Shermer, Yao Man from Survivor. He's actually a really nice guy. Yao! Yao Man. Bob, you're a big fan of Survivor, right? Yeah, I seem to get sucked into it every season. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, man, was great. He was one of the standouts of, of all seasons. He was just this unassuming guy, skinny, skinny guy, kind of, kind of geeky looking, I guess. And, um, but very, very personable. Seems like such a, such a nice guy. Super bright. My, he was making fire before anybody. Uh, very bright guy. And surprisingly, you wouldn't think by looking at him, but he was also kicking butt in the, uh, in the, cha- in the challenges too. So this is a very capable guy and extremely popular, extremely popular guy. So I was psyched. So to does that, that mean that, you know, Steve might be the first one voted off the island? <laughs> uh, <laughs> worried. He sounds like quite the contender. Steve, get into an alliance with Yao Man you, and you'll be okay. Okay, yeah. that's good. That's good advice. So, what are you guys? What are you guys doing T- today? We did the first day of shooting was just all the background stuff. So it was just us talking about our bios and answering just questions about like why are we skeptical, that kind of stuff. This is just all filler stuff that they you know that they're going to use, right? And then doing um, like the shots for the for the preview, like for the CG intro to the show. So they have to like. Mm. We all have CG. to stand and look skeptical as the camera swings by us, <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's always uh, been a challenge for skeptics, skeptics to look right. skeptical. I mean, how do you look skeptical? <laughs> it's always been a, it's always, that's always been a challenge. It's like that recent to-do with Jay Leno telling that guy to look in the camera and give his best gay oh, look. Gee. It's like you can't do a, a really good skeptical look without resorting to stereotypes. <laughs> Open mouth, right. insert foot. I guess the key is just don't look stupid. That's that's always the endeavor is not to look or sound <laughs> stupid. Right? So hope, hope, hopefully we'll achieve that. But yeah, but, it's, but t- today was so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, Brian Dunning who, of Skeptoid mm. is one of the co-producers with Ryan Johnson. Uh, so the the whole crew is is really good. Everybody seems to be you know, pretty much on board with the whole skeptical thing. So I think it's uh, it's it's going well. Tomorrow we're going on some uh, interesting uh, locations, which I'm very excited about. Actually, it should be a lot of fun. I bet it's so, a strip club. Oh, I was just thinking that. that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you it's Local Sylvia Brown's club. Palace of Whoopi. Those, <laughs> oh, God. Those oh, breasts are not real. Vomit. I must perform an experiment. <laughs> Mark, who is the uh, the magician on the on the cast, actually told me a story that he had an encounter with Sylvia Brown before she was famous. Uh, she was giving a, a talk at a hall, 
and he was, you know, infiltrating the audience just to go there just as a regular guy just to, just to get her shtick. And she canceled at the last minute because she heard there was going to be a skeptic in the audience. So she came up with oh some my kind God. of lame excuse and, and totally bailed on the on the people who were producing or, or promoting <laughs> the, uh, the talk. That's beautiful. Oh, wow. Nice. She's, so, she's that afraid. <laughs> well done. Uh, you know, for her, it's just a business for her. She doesn't want... Yeah, she took her. Yeah, she she also took her money. She took her money and just made some excuse and never gave the talk. Whoa! Oh, of course, brutal. Well, it yeah. sounds like you guys are having fun bonding. Right now, I um, I, I actually asked Phil Phil Plate to join us tonight, but he he has a date tonight. Phil Plate has a date. Whoa! With with uh, who? I hope his <laughs> wife isn't listening. <laughs> with Will Wheaton, yes. Phil is has it a Will going to be at crush. T- and Will's going to be at Tam uh, Six, if I'm not mistaken? No, apparently Will has a conflict and can't make Tam Six this uh. year. Well, he chose well, he chose poorly. He should have dumped the other thing. He did, he did, but he's got some other some prior engagement that he said. But yeah, we're working on him for next year. So Phil's having dinner with uh, Will Wheaton, you know, who played Wesley Crusher on Star Trek right now. So Phil does have a huge man crush on him, so I wonder what the replicator is making them for dinner. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure Phil is too nervous to eat right now. He's just poking at his salad. Oh, come on, <laughs> Wesley Crusher. I mean, come on. We- you don't. Obviously, you don't understand the depths of Phil's crush on Will Wheaton. <laughs> Apparently it's, not, and I don't think I want. It's humorous. To. I look forward to the blog post uh, that will surely follow. Yeah, right, right. Actually, Will Wheaton has a really, really well-written, very rational blog, which is how Phil really got interested in it. Really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, he's got I a great we blog. find out what it's called. And cool. i got to check that out. I believe it's like willwheaton.com. Yeah, it's, well, it's just Will Wheaton. Just if you look, look up his name, you'll find it. I'm sorry. It's willwheaton.net. Well, let's get to some news items. Uh, first, some follow-up on the whole PZ Meyer being expelled from expelled bit. Now, Rebecca, you were actually involved with a, um, a, a media conference with the, the producers of Expelled. This is that uh, intelligent design propaganda movie that, that starring Ben Stein that's coming out. Why don't you tell us yeah, about that? Yeah, if you guys... Uh if if our if anyone in our audience isn't aware of Expelled, you can go to expelledexposed.com and get caught up. That's Eugenie Scott's site that she talked about on the show last week. So the makers of the film, um, including two producers, Ben Stein and their hired PR goons, um, they held a teleconference for members of the press and they sent me an invite. This was uh, just last Friday. They invited me to to call in. How did you get on that invite list, by the way? I don't know. I just... <laughs> I signed I, up. I got the email and I just laughed for like they 10 minutes. Right. They failed. <laughs> they, were, they were full of fail. Like the fail was leaking out of their pores. Um, so, <laughs> and of course I immediately forwarded the email to, you know, Jeannie and uh, PZ and, and uh, Richard Dawkins and everybody, just in case. You know, so I call in on Friday and I was a little disappointed at first because the PR goons came on and said, thanks for everybody who's calling in right now um, to listen. Uh, just so you know, we're taking questions by email and then we'll read the questions to the producers and Ben Stein and they will then answer them. So immediately, you know, that they're going to filter out any messy, you know, anything too hard, and probably just lob a couple of softballs. So 
I go back to my desk and I, I send an email with some, some questions that I hope will maybe make it past, like just asking Ben Stein to explain creationism, uh, and explain what he, uh, believes the definition of evolution to be, because I think that he really has no idea. Um, so I thought that maybe there stood a chance of getting through. I, I go back and I check in on the conference call every now and again, but I'm at work, so I can't really listen the whole time. And it's pretty much your standard just BS. They're, they're talking about basically how great they are, much patting on the back. It was really kind of sickening. They did bring up the whole incident with kicking out PZ Myers in Minneapolis um, when they showed their film two weeks ago. It was just so full of their stupid lies that it was just, it was really difficult to listen to. It was, you know, PZ was causing a disturbance and, uh, or let's see, what, what did they go with? Oh, I think they said that, you know, they knew Richard Dawkins was there, but they wanted to let him in as opposed to the fact that they had no clue he was there. And right. They were completely shocked that he got in. Saying that Richard Dawkins snuck in, saying that PZ tried to sneak in, nothing could be further from the truth. So anyway, they went over all those lies. Well, at some point during the call, just after they finished talking about PZ, PZ broke into the call and started tearing them a new one. Broke into the call? Can, can you explain that, Rebecca? I can indeed. You see, <laughs> apparently, PZ tuned in early. He called in a little bit early and listened to the producers talking and the PR guys, and they openly said what the code was to get in and have the ability to speak on the phone call. While all the journalists could only hear, this code would allow you to speak. So PC hung up the phone and called right back and had speaking privileges. But then he just kept mute until he just couldn't take it anymore, and then he burst in. And nice. normally I would be really upset for missing that, but the fact of the matter is that I had happened to have been recording the entire thing. So wow. lucky for me and also lucky for um, all of our friends online, I actually have audio of the producers being just completely blown away. They start to move on to another topic. PZ comes in and says, you know, let's not move on. Let's not, because I'd prefer to keep talking about this. And there's this awkward pause, and somebody says, wait, who, who's, who's speaking? <laughs> and he goes, this is PZ Myers. Like, it's the most natural thing on the world. And I kind of fell in love with him a little bit right then. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine the look on their faces, hearing his I, voice come through? They went nuts, like to hear them scramble. Like, there's nervous laughter. There's there's <laughs> scrambling. It's it's really quite quite Hilarious. a thing to hear. So, um, if if you guys are are interested in hearing it, um, you can go on Skeptic. And and so you know the quality is a little rough, but we have a little clip here that we can play now. And if you want to hear the rest of it and see a transcript, just uh, go on the Skeptic blog and do a search for PZ, and you will find it. Uh, gentlemen, let's move off of those controversies and back to really the core message of the film. Um, I understand. Let's not. Let's not move off of it. Uh, you do know that both Richard Dawkins and P.G. Myers have posted substantial criticisms of your movies, don't you? Well, I haven't seen them, but why don't you tell us what they are? Yeah. Who's asking that question? This is P.G. Myers. 
The, the, the transcript is interesting because, like, Mark Mathis, yeah. who was the producer, was saying to PZ, bring it, bring it. Like, let's go. Go ahead. Let's hey, Send me your questions. Let's go at it. But but then they kicked PZ off. And he's like, oh, that's too bad. I really wanted to address his issues. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was pure yeah. passive aggressive. Uh, it was just all posturing. So ironically, they were they were accusing PZ of crashing the expelled movie a couple of weeks ago, which was a lie. But now this time, he really did crash their press conference and show. He really did. He really did. Yeah, in all honesty, yeah, and he it was did. hilarious. But it was hilarious, <laughs> right? <laughs> and again, just because they're incompetent, you know, they're 
completely incompetent. Here's the co- here's the secret code so you could talk while it's possible that somebody <laughs> could be listening in and they didn't even consider that possibility. Well, also, usually when somebody when somebody joins a conference like that, that normally I guess they had it turned off. Usually, normally you're announced, you know, now being joined by. And then whatever yeah, they, you said. They so didn't if, have that, yeah. which confused me at first when I signed on. And then there were these people talking, and I'm like, do I introduce myself? I don't know. And I just decided to keep quiet. Yeah. And then I found out later that it didn't matter because all of nice. our lines were muted anyway. Yeah. And it's all started because inexplicably they invited you to this press conference. Not, not uh, only the connection. Yes. Not, yeah, not being completely – they obviously didn't Google your name or whatever. They didn't spend the, the, the time it would take to realize no. that you're not yeah, in their camp. I don't know. Yeah, they might know who you are now, though. <laughs> I'm wondering if they just were looking for any blog that was mentioning the film, maybe doing a Google and seeing what blogs came up and sending it to them. They also invited um, a media person from Science Blogs. They didn't, and they invited. Uh, I think they sent invites to some of the pandas thumb guys too, but they did not send an invite to PZ. Mm-hmm. So they they did send some. Like I wasn't the only enemy that they invited. So yeah, I'm not sure what they were hoping to accomplish by that. If they were trying to rub it in our faces, or I don't know. But I one don't other know. Thing, it's baffling. The, the the last thing I want to say though before we go off this topic is that before PZ got kicked off, he had the chance to tell the the media who were there if you want the real story. Here's how to contact me once the mm-hmm. conference is over. So he did, and he did supposedly he got dozens of emails from awesome, so, awesome. Yeah. So yeah, mission accomplished. <laughs> mission accomplished. Well done. Nice Good job. Good job. Thank you. The next news item has to do with creating a human-animal embryo. A British team claims that they have already created human-cow hybrid embryo. The way they accomplish this is by taking a cow stem cell, embryonic stem cell, removing the nucleus, and then injecting the nucleus, which has the DNA, from a human cell. And then you end up with an embryonic stem cell with human DNA, but the rest of the cell bits, including the mitochondria, which has a little bit of its own DNA, would be cow. So it is a a cow-human hybrid. The the purpose for this is to create embryonic stem cells for research, not to clone people or to use these. Not to make a manimal. Right, not to make a half cow, half human, Um, but to just to, for embryonic stem cells for research because there is a shortage of such cells, mainly because of the ban in the U.S. But this has created a lot of con- a lot of controversy because, you know, whenever you talk about mixing human and non-human, you know, biological parts, um, there's, somebody's going to get upset about it. The Roman Catholic Church is not happy with this. When's the last time they were happy about something that happened <laughs> in the sciences? Cardinal Keith O'Brien, who's the head of the Catholic Church in Scotland, described the work as experiments of Frankenstein proportion. So that's the spin they're they're putting yeah, on. Yeah, what an exact uh, perfect description of what's going on. He should be a scientist. Yes. The cow person will definitely storm a village and kill a small child. I just <laughs> wish Jay were here so that he and I could argue about whether to call it a cow or a person. <laughs> <laughs> cow man. But no, but of course the, the, this type of work is not being done. You cannot even you can't grow these embryos past the 32 cell stage. It's it's Why? actually against the law. Oh, um, that's the law. That's the law really? in in the UK. That, that right. What's, okay. What is what is that equivalent to? Thirty two 
32 cells, you said? Yeah, 32 cells. Yeah, 32 cells. So that's still in the, in the, you know, in the right. embryo stage. Let's, let's say I were pregnant with the manimal. How far along would I be? 32 cells, I think, is just either hours to a day or so. I mean, this is still, still, micro, still very, very tiny. You know, I think still within the Plan B range to right. get rid of the. You'd only the be kind of pregnant. This is pre-implantation. This is this would this is where it's still oh, not down even the fallopian tube. It hasn't really implanted. Not even nidation in the uterus. Hasn't yet. attached to the wall. Yeah. Right. That's right. Okay. But what now? What would happen? I mean, it's according to what I read. This is essentially 99.9 percent of uh, human genetic material with only the uh, the mitochondrial DNA. Uh, not not being human, but what? How different is mitochondria DNA of a cow compared to a human? What what would happen if you just kind of really let this go on, uh, prodding it along? If you had to, I wonder what would happen. Yeah, how far I, would I don't go. know. I mean, it might be perfectly normal, uh, but uh, but I don't know. Perfectly I mean, it's, normal. It's possible. What? I mean, it, it, it might be a perfectly normal human being without any deficit or problem. Really? Yeah, I mean it's 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 entirely human DNA in the nucleus. The only thing is that the mitochondria would be partly cow mitochondria. It would be partly human mitochondria and partly cow mitochondria. That could potentially be a problem. It depends on how similar human and cow mitochondria are. Are, are there any gene incompatibilities there? I'll, and I don't know the answer to that question. We may know it, but I, I don't I don't I don't know it. It's not it's not impossible that it would just be a perfectly normal human being. Yeah. All right. Let's see. <laughs> but it's not. But that's not going to happen. Right. Right. At least no. At least no, no time soon. Um, the the next news item. This is a, a funny one. This is a yeah a tantric guru who was called out on live TV. Bob, you you're you prepared this one. Yeah. Right? Yeah. This is good. It's a far too rare and wonderful occurrence when a popular piece of the paranormal is put to a definitive test in front of a huge audience, and this is exactly what happened early earlier in March on a popular Indian TV show. It all started when Uma Bharati, a former chief minister of the state of uh, Madhya Pradesh, was ac- uh, accused her political opponents of harming her. Apparently, her recently her uncle died, she banged her leg. She woke up with these mysterious wounds and sores on her legs. I have no idea what that's all about. How do you wake up with mysterious wounds? Maybe she had a seizure. Ah, I guess, okay, I guess that's possible. That's actually, that's actually, if somebody has a seizure at nighttime, sometimes it's the only way you know is that they wake up with unexplained mm. bruises and injuries on okay. their limbs. India TV, which in the article I read was described as one of India's major Hindi channels, I don't know if they meant to say shows, so I don't know if it's a channel or a show, uh, invited two people uh, on their show, Sanal Edamaruku, who is the president of Rationalist International, and Pandit Surinder Sharma, who claims to be the tantric of top politicians, to discuss tantric power versus science. Now, tantra, I found a definition of tantra that described it as an Asian body of beliefs and practices, which working from the principle that the universe we experience is nothing other than the concrete manifestation of the divine energy of the Godhead that creates and maintains the universe seeks to ritually appropriate and channel that energy in, a cre- in creative ways. Now, mantras also play an important part of Tantra. You might have heard of mantras. These verbalizations are seen as ways of singing the divine power into being. I forgot my okay. mantra. Anyone? Anyone I know that movie? Mantra. Come on. Uh, nope. Sorry. No. Nope. I'll leave it to the <laughs> listeners. Put it okay. on the board. During the show, the Tantric, I'll refer to uh, Pandit Surinder Sharma as the Tantric, 
Uh, that's how he's referred to in the in the articles that I read. The tantric showed a small wheat flour dough figure, kind of like a voodoo doll, on the show. And he claimed that by putting a string around its neck like a noose, he could kill anyone he wanted within three minutes using black magic. Anyone made of dough, at All least. All the Pillsbury right. people around. You got it. Sonal, being the good skeptic, of course, challenged him uh, to try and kill him. So Pan did accept it, which was probably his first major mistake of the night. Uh, <laughs> The attempt. I would say it was at least his second or third. Well, no, he made lots of mistakes, but this is the first major one. The okay. attempt, the attempt to magically kill Sanal started with mantras, as I described earlier, or magic words like Avarta Kedavra. Well, no, <laughs> that Kedavra. What? That would have worked if he did that one. The, right, that would be silly. Avarta Kedavra. <laughs> Doesn't he call this the ultimate destruction ceremony? I'm getting there. I'm getting oh, okay, there. I'm sorry. The tantric actually chanted stuff like. Om Linga Linga Lina Linga Killy Killy Killy, and of course, as you might expect, nothing nothing happened. <laughs> the Killy I mean, Killy didn't then work. Bre- <laughs> no, right? You imagine that's, that's funny how that. You try yeah, murdery right? murdery. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> I wonder if that actually m- means anything. But uh, he then then he then was getting a little desperate. I think after a while, and he took out a knife and was waving oh, a knife over Sonal's body. <laughs> nothing happened except I think Sonal started laughing at him. Uh, he then started to touch him. He's, he was like putting his hands all over his head and then started squeezing his temples. And Sonal had to remind him that, hey, only black magic. You're, you're not supposed to use physical force to do to accomplish <laughs> Yeah, right. Then what? So, uh, Did he pull out a gun at any point? <laughs> I would get yeah, worried. Right? He pulls out a gun. So the three the, – this, this is so funny. The three-minute deadline or time okay. frame comes and goes. So then they're, then they're at five minutes, then a half hour – then the allotted time for the entire show was over. The show is over, done, but they keep going. They keep going. Finally, two hours later, two hours after the original three minutes, and I'm sure, I don't know, one or two or maybe even three shows miss, weren't going to be on TV that night because this, this show was still on. Finally, the anchor bravely declares that, that the tantric failed. So so what happens now, skeptics? What's, what usually special happens pleading, special pleading. Let the excuses begin. Yeah, so the tantric, and he's, this guy is just not sophisticated. I don't think he's encountered too many skeptics in his days, but he claims that a very powerful god that Sanal must have worshipped must be protecting him. And I guess he didn't do his homework on Sanal because Sanal <laughs> said, no, I'm an atheist. <laughs> Yay. So that kind of threw him for a loop, and He I said, think. oh, the atheist god is protecting you. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> right. So then he pulls out, he, he pulls out his... Uh, <laughs> He pulls out his uh, special card here, and he goes um, that he has a never-failing special black magic for <laughs> ultimate destruction that he could Ooh. use. But, but, big, Plus ca- three. big caveat, yeah, it can only be done at night. So, of course, what happens? So now, ch- of course, challenges him for that very night. So, he obviously, he accepted. So, they got three hours to kill. So, India TV announces over and over the Great Tantra Challenge. Tonight, tonight, don't miss it. So they're promoting this like, for, for three hours, and they, I think they did a good job because according to the article I read, several hundred wow. million people are watching it that night. That's quite an audience. Cue to that night. It's that night. They're ready to go. The tantric pandit Surinder Sharma, he warns Sanal. He says that once the ultimate magic is called upon, there's no turning back. Once, it, once it's unleashed, that's it. And he describes what happens. He says that in two minutes, Sanal would get crazy. One minute later, he'll scream in pain and die. So Sanal, of course, starts laughing. Wait, wait, I'm sorry, wait. Did you say laughing or screaming in pain? It was hard to tell he was laughing so hard. (laughs) Yeah. Following describes the process 
of experts invoking ultimate death magic. Please do try this at home. <laughs> First, chant death words like Om Linga Linga Lina Linga Killy Killy. Killy Killy Killy. Right. Then, throw magic ingredients into a fire to make cool colors. Ooh. Ooh. Next, touch the person you want dead, even if you're warned to keep your distance over mm -hmm. and over. Then, write the name of your victim on paper, tear it up, and put the pieces into boiling butter oil. Margarine's okay as long as it has trans fat. What about I can't believe it's not butter light? Is that okay? No, that won't work. That totally reverses the spell. All right, and when do we eat the paper with the butter? Come on. Well, you what? don't eat it. You dramatically, you dramatically throw the paper in oh, the fire. No waste. And then, and then this is key. Do not <laughs> act surprised when nothing happens. Act cool, man. Act cool. Bring out your trusty flour dough, and you knead it carefully and powder it with mysterious ingredients. Oh, drop it in the butter. This, I like where mm -hmm. this is going. It's going somewhere delicious. Then have your victim touch it before piercing it with blunt nails. They have to be blunt. What okay. about a fork? No, no, no. Uh, that won't work. Not, not unless you break off the tines. Finally, hey, we're getting to the end here. Finally, cut the dough wildly with a knife and throw it all into the fire. And you know you're done when your victim starts laughing again. Or when the pancakes have nicely browned on both sides. We will po the, post this recipe on the website. And and there you go. This feeds, I mean, kills eight. <laughs> mm, nice. So they, apparently they had a scientist on the show, and he, he said that they, they, he wasn't identified or what his uh, specialty was, but he did say the following. He said, tantrics are creating such a scaring atmosphere that even people who know that black magic has no base can just break down out of fear. It needs enormous courage and confidence to challenge them by actually putting one's life at risk, he said. By doing so, Sanal Edamaruku has broken the spell and has taken away much of the fear of those who witnessed his triumph. Well done, Sunal. Congratulations to you, Sunal. You did a great now, job. Now, here's the Excellent. other. Here's the flip. Here's the flip side of that, guys. In all ser in all seriousness, and you call you can call this the James Randi psychic uh, psychic healing effect. Remember when Randy was on the Carson show? He did the psychic healing. He pulled the tumors out of the guy. It was all a trick and so forth. And then mm -hmm. they reported that after the show, everyone was calling up to find out how they could get in touch with a psychic oh, yeah. surgeon. So yep. it kind of had this almost a boomerang or well, backfire effect. Do you think that's gonna that would happen in this case as well? Not so much. Not so much because because when when he did the demonstration, he made it look good. It made it look like he was really doing something. Here, they just failed over and over and over, and th there was no success. But we've at seen all. time again that evidence I mean, doesn't doesn't convince people of anything. They just want to show. They just want a flashy person that they can pour their money and belief into. But this isn't a scientific ev evidence based thing. This is an emotional thing where people tuning in can clearly see a man laughing at something that was previously considered very uh, disturbing and dark. And I think that that can have a huge impact on changing the whole attitude of how uh, this culture is viewing this particular exercise. Right. So, yeah, I think it's different. I, th I think it's a very different situation. Yeah, yeah we'll see. I mean, it's early. It's nice. It's a, it, was, it was. It's just good to see somebody stand up to that in public, meet the challenge, and of course, it all goes as we expect. What the effect will be on the culture? Right. No one thing is going to turn around that much culture or embedded beliefs, but everything helps. And this, so you can, you can only applaud something like this happening. And so that huge audience, hundreds of millions of people. I mean, how often does that happen? That that is a very rare event in a country of a billion people. Yeah. I don't know. Well, thanks, Bob. <laughs> the next news item has to do with the CERN Super Collider. 
This is actually the, the Large Hadron Collider, which has uh, been being built over the last 14 years at a cost of $8 billion. And this is being produced by the European Center for Nuclear Research, or CERN, C-E-R-N. The uh, scientists hope to use this to recreate particles that may have existed a trillionth of a, trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So this is some this is pretty exciting science. But of course there's got to be some nutball in there trying to ruin everybody's front, right? Oh yeah. Oh, of course. Yes. Uh former nuclear safety officer Walter Wagner. Um that surprised me because in a lot of the articles I read said that he this guy was a I don't know, was he a botanist or or something, but he was he's a, a nuclear safety officer and Luis Sancho both living in Hawaii and Sancho I could find very little about this guy. All I could find was that he's uh, from Spain, and according to Phil, he's a, he's a whack job. I did look at a, a website that he was involved in that seems pretty pretty far gone. But they both have asked for injunctions to prevent CERN um, from booting up the Large Hadron Collider, which is scheduled to start uh, uh, later this year. Th- their big claim is that CERN has underplayed the likelihood of a planetary apocalypse that might be caused by the the LHC. And uh, Steve described um, the LHC and uh, and some of the things that they, they hope to uh, accomplish with it. Their fear now, the big fear is that the LHC will create an Earth-devouring black hole or that it could also create strange matter in the form of something called strangelets that could transform our planet into a, uh, a small, dense ball of strange matter. Now, a spokesman from CERN said the lawsuit claims were complete nonsense much higher energy collisions than those at the LHC occur in nature all the time because cosmic ray particles zip around our galaxy at closer to speed of light. He said that the moon has undergone such collisions for 5 billion years without, having, without being devoured by a ravenous black hole or killer strangelet. Now, uh, regarding the black holes, research that CERN had done uh, relatively recently has shown that there won't be enough energy to create a black hole. Even if they were created, they would immediately disappear in a puff of Hawking radiation in about 10 to the minus 42 seconds, which is a pretty small amount of time. Now, Wagner and Sancho claim that there's no absolute proof of Hawking radiation. And uh, regarding this point, Phil of BadAstronomy.com, Phil makes a great point when he says in his blog that the same equations in quantum mechanics that say that subatomic collisions could create black holes also say that they will evaporate. So it's pretty much a package deal. You can't say, you know, one's not going to happen, but the other one is. They pretty much go together. So that's kind of silly. Now, regarding strangelets, uh, theoretically, these are, and I I stress the word theoretically, these are negatively charged um, strangelets that are uh, certain exotic yet stable combinations of quarks, which are the constituents of uh, protons and neutrons, and which are governed by the color force. Now, this material could potentially have a, a Midas-like ability to change everything it comes in contact with into hyperdense strange matter. Uh, the Earth would collapse down to about a 100-meter sphere if, if this, uh, in fact, could occur. Now, physicist and author Michio Kaku has said regarding this that we see no evidence of this bizarre theory. He said, once in a while, we trot it out to scare the pants off people, but it's not serious. The general consensus regarding these, I believe, is, is that strangelets are almost certainly not stable. Even if they are, they would not be produced at the um, LHC. And even if they are produced there, they would almost definitely have a positive charge and be screened from any interactions by a cloud of electrons. So every one of these steps in the argument would have to be flawed 
for there to be a, a risk of, of these strangelets uh, converting the earth into, uh, into strange matter. So this is exceedingly unlikely, and these guys have, have latched onto this as... Um, Inevitable. You know, as something just fear-mongering. And, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe they actually have a, a real fear of this, and they think that um, it should be researched more thoroughly. What, I don't know. What does it feel like to actually feel like you could be potentially saving the planet? You know, these guys must think, if they believe this, and I, I'm sure they have a genuine desire to to prevent this stuff from happening, and they really think it could happen. I don't know. What does it feel like to think that, wow, I could be saving, if they listen to me, I could be saving the planet or even the universe? Because some of these predictions can say that some of these changes could actually um, – affect the entire universe itself. So well, Yeah, I mean, it's like your Spider-Man and right? the <laughs> bad guy as the scientist who is, you know, out of control, you know. And speaking of, uh, I want to have a comic book one day and I want the villain to be Professor Strangelet <laughs> and he would be all about making this come to pass. That would be his main goal. He's going to invent a race of cowmen to take over the world. <laughs> so, Bob, I, I think I think that you're, brilliant. you're partly right, but I also think they're just grandstanding. It's easy to say, "Oh, they, it, this isn't safe," you know, to, to be the Cassandra and to fear monger like that, and, and to say that they haven't proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that this horrible thing can't happen. That's easy. I think they're just grandstanding. This guy, Louis Sancho, if you you go to his website, it pulls up actually a PDF. Uh, file and it's it's a it's totally Looney Tunes. This guy um, is into the quantic networks of energy and information with super oh, super wow. organisms. Nice. It is it is complete quantic. and total super organisms like a man. <laughs> it's, it's it's just <laughs> science babble. Cow? It's just techno babble nonsense. I mean, just take a look at it. This is like all one notch shy of Time Cube. Seriously, it's it's that bad. So this guy's Ooh. a total nut job. <laughs> and then harsh. the other guy, Walter Wagner, this is not the first time he sued to prevent no. the super collider from being turned on, right, Bob? Yep. The RHIC, he uh he made similar claims. And that worked, that that was fine. Yeah, it's been going for years. It's been going for years. So yeah, he he does this every time a, a collider's gonna come online. Right. So uh everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> right, it's his hobby yeah. to there prevent super colliders from coming online. <laughs> Honey, come to bed. I can't. There's another collider about to start up. <laughs> well, thanks, Bob. Let's go on to your uh questions and emails. First one comes from Edgar Alfonso Polanco from Colombia. And Edgar writes, Hello, skeptics. I'm 24, and I'm Hello, writing Edgar. you all the way from Bogota, Colombia. I've been listening to you for a while now. As a matter of fact, the first episode I listened to was the one where you announced Perry's death. Well, I'm an economist, and I used to believe really weird stuff, UFOs, ESP, reincarnation, you name it. Thanks to people like you, James, Randy, Richard Dawkins, and a lot more, I'm now a proud skeptic. Browsing over the Internet, I found this page. It has a long list of arguments skeptics made when debunking something. Some I can think of an answer to, but for some, like number five, the answer eludes me. I know the time in your show is short, and maybe you can go over the whole list, but I think it would. I think this would make a nice name, that logical fallacy. Well, so do we, Edgar, so thanks for sending us in. This is the website uh, called Debunking Skeptical Arguments, and uh, this is written by a, nam- a man named... Ironically, Winston Wu. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> those of you who have uh, been on the JREF forum for a few years remember him. He's quite infamous with lawsuits in the JREF and 
Yeah, lawsuit. It's a walking mess. Right, Mm -hmm. right. But he took the time to write a rather elaborate website with these long responses to uh, typical skeptical arguments. He's trying, he fancies himself as a debunker of the skeptical debunkers. And of course, he gets it all wrong. I mean, he's just, his thinking is so hopelessly confused. And if, if he was a frequent uh, denizen of the JREF forums, apparently he hasn't learned anything from that experience except how to parrot some uh, skeptical jargon, but only enough to, to use it to create a straw man that he could then attack. So let's take a couple of these. Uh, we'll start with uh, the first one, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. That's something that uh, that skeptics mm-hmm. say a lot. What it basically means, uh, it actually, uh, T.H. Huxley said a similar thing. Uh, Huxley, who was Darwin's bulldog, you know, a, bril- a brilliant man, said that a, a wise man apportions his belief to the evidence. It's basically the same concept. Any belief should be matched by an equal amount of evidence. And if something is extraordinary, meaning that based upon everything we know up to this point, this claim is unlikely. It, it, it either would require new assumptions about the world or the universe, or it would, it would overturn previously reasonably established beliefs. Something makes it an unlikely or improbable or extraordinary claim. Therefore, the amount of evidence that would be required to support that has got to be equal to the evidence that makes it improbable or unlikely. That, you know, is a pretty logically unassailable statement. I mean, how could, how could you argue with that? But this is what he has to say about it. Um, he has his seven problems with that position, although he skipped over number two for some reason. Um, first of all, he says that skeptics do not define what we mean by extraordinary, uh, referring to the amount of evidence that would be required. And therefore, we could use that to move the, gold po- move the goalposts. That statement is uh, is certainly potentially true, but what he's then saying is that all skeptics are deniers, because that is a tactic of denial, he, is to use the... Uh, he, so he's really create. This is a straw man because he's assuming that the only way to apply this principle is to abuse it, and that it, but it, then that it can't be properly applied. But he did not establish or make the case that you could not... Uh, that you could not reasonably apply the principle of extraordinary evidence. So in that way, he constructs this straw man, which is really just characterizing all skepticism as denial. And that is that is the, the basic strategy that he follows. He twists everything enough to make it into this straw man, which he then then tears down. Um, let me t- go to another. Again, there's, there's too much here to go over all of this. Uh, during this podcast, I'm going to pick out just some representative pieces. Another one is um, uh, number four. His problem with uh, with this skeptical premise is that it is he says that it's it's based upon an unproven premise that paranormal phenomena are impossible or extremely imp- improbable. And then he goes on to attack the notion that it's impossible. He really focuses on that. So again, that's another straw man. None of this is premised, first of all, on the the, the belief that paranormal claims, which is what he's interested in defending, are impossible. One application of this principle, and this doesn't really get to the 
the logical validity of the principle, just this application of it, is that paranormal claims are inherently improbable. And yeah, I think that that's been established. That's that's established just by the fact that no one's proven any paranormal claim. So by, if something is unproven, by definition, that would require a new assumption about the universe, and that is enough to make something uh, inherently improbable, or at least require you know, a, a sufficient amount of evidence to establish it as a new phenomenon. But let's go to number five, which is the one that uh, that Edgar specifically mentioned. The anecdotal evidence is invalid argument. Uh, this is an important one because believers in all kinds of nonsense uh, would like to rely and, and heavily do rely upon anecdotal evidence. And scientists and skeptics generally do not accept anecdotal evidence as reliable. And he's saying that this is not valid. But his his logic here is so twisted. First, let me just say why I think the, the principle is valid. And I actually did. I actually blogged about this a couple of times on um, neurologica and science based medicine, and I'll have the links to that uh, because again, it just it needs to be it needs to be spelled out very specifically why we we hold this to be true. It's because there's multiple reasons why anecdotal evidence is unreliable. It's uncontrolled. Uh, it relies upon memory, which is flawed in many, many ways. And it's subject to a host of psychological uh, factors that could lead people to to uh, arrive at false conclusions. So that's, pre- that's pretty straightforward, and that is, this is not some, you know, bizarre, extreme, hard-nosed, skeptical philosophy as he's trying to portray it. This is just a basic scientific principle. Uncontrolled observations are not objective sound scientific evidence period that is that, that is one of the core uh, pieces of wisdom that that science has developed you know over over the last few centuries again what he says let me, let me pick out a couple of representative arguments that he makes well, Steve, let me throw one in um, he uh, one quote I have from that was he says that the fact is that most anecdotes personal accounts and what we remember check out most of the time huh. rarely is it ever based on nothing at all. Now, I see that as a, as a straw man argument. I, really, we don't say non-events. We say, no, it's a, mostly a misinterpretation. So he's mischaracter, mischaracterizing uh, the, the, the skeptical argument, I think. It's not – because he, what he's saying here is that when they, when they hit us with an anecdote, we say, oh, that didn't happen, we, which we usually – I don't think we say that. Mainly, it's like, no, you misinterpreted this. And uh, this is more likely than your, you know, this interpretation is more likely than your interpretation. So I saw that as a straw yeah. man, that, that yeah. specific quote. Right. Here's one. He says, uh, imagining a conversation with a skeptic, uh, he says that skeptics, you know, he'll challenge them, say, well, if you don't believe in anecdotal evidence, why do you believe that France exists if you've never been to France? Which I don't know why it's always oh. France. That, that's got to be <laughs> copying because I've had that exact example. Because given they to, hate our freedom. Yeah, it's, it's, it's never Uruguay, you know, for whatever reason, it's always France. But anyway, um, and, he, and he writes, the skeptic will usually reply with, but I can fly to France and verify that it exists. And that answer totally misses the point. So I, I then counter with the key question, yeah, but until you go to France, do you assume for now that it doesn't exist based on your skeptical philosophy that anecdotal evidence is invalid? That stumps them every time. They never have a response to that one. Mm. Well, here's the response. Well, yeah. I guess France yeah. doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. never been to the You're sun right. either. Yeah, right. You're right. Oh. France doesn't exist. <laughs> you win this time, Winston Wu. So this guy's either never actually talked to skeptics, which we know is not true, or he just, again, he's not listening. So here's the thing. First of all, there's actually 
pretty extraordinary objective physical evidence that France exists, even without going there. Video, pictures, these are, these are objective pieces of evidence. In fact, if you look at it this way, the alternate hypothesis that France doesn't exist is orders of magnitude more extraordinary than the, than the hypothesis that France does exist. Right, because the alternate hypothesis is that there is an entire culture and language and history that must be made up if France doesn't exist. Every picture I've ever seen of the Eiffel Tower and and film must be must be fabricated or false or, or misinterpreted or whatever. I mean, it becomes completely impossible, you know, for the notion that France doesn't exist. So it's not based upon just anecdotal evidence, the same kind of anecdotal evidence that people are putting forward to support notions like ghost exists or that homeopathy works, right? So there's absolutely no analogy there whatsoever, yet he's convinced that he's got the answer that stumps all the skeptics. It's really quite pathetic, actually. He also says, again, this is a straw man, that anecdotal is not considered zero evidence or worthless by our society. So, well, that's an argument ad populi. But it's also a straw man in that no one, the point is not that anecdotal evidence has zero value. I think the best way to, to, to um, regard anecdotal evidence is that it's very, very low-grade evidence. So that it may be sufficient for you to accept really mundane claims. Right, that's right. the point, is that you yeah. know, these are not extraordinary claims that, that anecdotal evidence can accurately depict. Right. It's the yeah. extraordinary claims that it, it, it never, never can get like right. The everyday little things, you know, that we don't question every little thing that we encounter in our lives. But even for scientific evidence, uh, it's not considered having zero value. Anecdotal evidence is considered sufficient to generate hypotheses, but it's not considered sufficient to test hypotheses. Right. So in other words, if people claim that a treatment worked for them, that's not enough to conclude that it actually does work. But it may be enough to say, all right, so we can generate a hypothesis that maybe this is having some effect. That should be tested. But people confuse that. They think that it's this false dichotomy or this straw man that it's either it's rock-solid evidence we can use to draw conclusions or it's worthless and has zero value. No, it's just got to be put into its proper place. It's good for really simple, mundane claims, and it's maybe good for generating hypotheses, but it's not sufficient to establish a completely new phenomenon of reality. Yeah, or to determine if a, something's curing cancer or not. Right, right. So um, I've actually blogged about a few of these. Uh, he has a ton of arguments. We have like 30 listed here. Um, some we've heard before, like the James Randi talks about the James Randi million dollar psychic challenge, but of course, you know, it, he's uh, full of misinformation when it comes to that. Um, he dismisses our explanations for so-called precognitive dreams and near-death experiences, um, but it's all again these very, very logically challenged, low-grade arguments that he's making. And again, I, I've written about four or five of them on my blog actually about a year ago. This, this thing has been up there for a while. But it's a good exercise because, first of all, you know it's good just to to talk about the, the you know different logical and, and skeptical principles, and also to to understand what the other side is saying about them and why that's wrong. The next email comes from David Gann in Japan, and David writes, Hi, I'm a great fan of the podcast. Keep up the good work. I wrote before on this matter but never got a reply. Well, I wish we had the time to reply to every single email, and as we said before, I, we actually do read every single email, although though we can't always um, 
we don't always have time to reply to all of them, and we apologize for that. But David goes on. But I know you guys are pretty busy. Please write back if you can. I'm a university teacher in Japan, and some time ago I told my class that some of the dust on the moon had been found to contain dinosaur bone fragments or dust from fossils that had been blown into the atmosphere during the KT event. I heard this on a reputable podcast like Science Friday or Scientific American, but when I tried to find info on the net, I found nothing. I wrote to both of these podcasts but never heard back from them. I felt bad later because, despite my interest in skepticism, I had passed along something to my class that I later could not verify. Please tell me if you have ever heard of this, your avid listener, David Gann. Thanks for the question. You know, I searched for this quite extensively, and again, it's always hard to prove a negative. By when I went to those sites, I had never heard about it. It seems very implausible to me, and I just wanted to just make sure, yeah. just to see if there's anything written about it, and I just found whatever I could on NASA and astronomical sites about the regolith and the moon dust, and there's... Um, the the report the description of the the regolith which is the the surface of the moon uh the the upper layer uh which is mostly just you know pulverized you know dirt and minerals from meteor impacts it is is completely and totally lifeless there there is there is no existing life nor any fossils or any evidence or remnants of previous life on the surface of the moon now, it's not entirely impossible that an asteroid you know, would smack into the Earth, kick up rocks, which would then escape the, Earth, uh, the Earth's gravity and then would find themselves on other bodies in the solar system. That happens. So there are Earth meteorites on other planets and, and moons in the solar system, just like the Earth has Mars rocks and moon mm-hmm. rocks, things that were kicked up from Mars or kicked up from the moon or other planets and then eventually found their way to the Earth. And then, you know, we find a meteorite in Antarctica and it's a, it's a Mars rock, right? So that happens. And just like as you remember, like the, the, um, a few years ago, there was the controversy whether, about whether or not a Mars rock collected from a meteorite might have had signs of mm-hmm. ancient fossilized Martian um, life bacteria or, you know, or microscopic life. So it's not impossible that that could have happened in reverse. However, it would be extremely improbable that an actual you know, recognizable dinosaur fossil could would have found its way to the moon. And it would be then doubly improbable that we would find it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, our sampling of the surface of the moon is is very very tiny. You know, just the the Apollo missions and other missions, robotic missions that have uh, brought back moon rocks. The chance of us finding an Earth meteorite and an Earth meteorite with a dinosaur bone in it is infinitesimal. And I would think it would be huge news. So I think my, the fact that I cannot find any information about that. Um, and in fact, specific um, descriptions of the of the of the moon saying that no fossils or anything have ever been discovered there, you know, indicates that that's never happened. So that's one of those things. It just seems to me that we would have heard about. Yeah. It. You know, considering what we do and what our interests are, I think you could almost say, you know, since I since none of us have heard about that, that just it really increases my confidence that it 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 never happened. Right. You know, and normally, you know, normally you, you should never do that because you got to really, you know, should actively search for something if you're trying to find an answer. But that, I didn't have time to really look into this, into this news item. But my first thought was that, man, we would have heard yeah, about this. Yeah. How could, you know, how could that How many times have we said notice? that on science or fiction and gotten proven <laughs> way wrong? Yeah, but usually that's because well, I'm pulling something off the news wire from an hour ago. You know, that's, that's 
Yeah. Right. When you guys haven't heard right. about it, this is something that you know I, I would have run across. But again, I, Bob, I did do a search and I could not come up with anything right. about it. And NASA has nothing right. to say about it. And you think they would? You know? Yeah, it would be would, would mention would mention yeah. that. Right. That would be a huge. Story. But if anyone does think they have any link or any information about this, uh, send it to us. We'll be happy to take a look at it. I just could not. I could not quote unquote dig anything up. Huh. Well, let's go on to science or fiction. <laughs> It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are real and one is fake. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. However, this week, since I am busy filming the pilot for the Skeptologists, Bob is filling in, just like he did a few weeks ago when I was on vacation. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, take it away. Very exciting. All right. The theme this week is science or fiction. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> the theme is things Bob knows. <laughs> things Bob knows. Okay. Numero uno. Study shows male peacock feathers fail to impress females. Peahens, by the way. Number two. Not sure about the, pronunci- the pronunciation of this. Tuatata reptile is declared the slowest evolving animal. Number three, exposure to radon gas can reduce the risk of lung cancer by as much as 60%. Evan, speak to me. Male peacock's feathers fail to impress females. I mean, that's entirely plausible. Um, You know, it just contradicts sort of the, uh, the, the common folk knowledge of that the male feathers is, in fact, what attracts the females, so it's possible. Tuatara, is that, am I pronouncing that right? Tuatara. Tuatara, reptile, declared the slowest evolving animal. Gosh. I, I imagine they can measure that, because I think they, they, they can make measurements of how specific animals and creatures and things do evolve over time, so I think that's plausible. Exposure to radon gas can reduce the risk of lung cancer by as much as 60%. Ouch. Oh, God. How can you choose? How can you say that that's right? That's that's just totally counterintuitive. But this is a good one, Bob. I think maybe that's the curveball. But, well, because I probably know the least about it, I'll say that the reptile, slowest evolving animal, that one is fiction. Rebecca. Well... Peacock feathers, they always seemed a bit metrosexual to me, so I can see how that might not impress their females. Um, radon, that that makes sense. I take my radon pills every day, and I've never had uh, cancer. So I think that's true. Um, and everybody knows that the slowest evolving animal is Tom Cruise, so I believe that uh, that one is fiction. Steve. Well, I have to disagree with both of my esteemed colleagues on this one. I think that the Tuatara reptile is the slowest evolving animal. I think that one is actually correct. So, I, For me, it's down to one in three. Both are implausible. I mean, the whole point of male peacock feathers is to, is to attract the female. It's, a, it's the classic example of sexual selection. So there's got to be something about that, that that you're not telling us. Um in some particular way or something. There's just some study that goes against that uh, that belief in some way, but I can't imagine that it would invalidate the entire notion that the purpose of those feathers is for sexual selection. 
And then the third one, um, I have not heard anything about this. I mean, that, again, it's counterintuitive. I thought the whole point of radon gas was that it was a risk factor, uh, that it was unhealthy, not that it, uh, and that it would reduce the risk of lung cancer by 60%. That's a lot. That's a, you know that's a big decrease in lung cancer. I wonder if that can you give me any more information, Bob? Is that just in a subpopulation, like just among Don't smokers give him more or something? Information. You get nothing in life. Shut it. up, Steve. Come on, you got your information. <laughs> two two words. That's not the way it works. <laughs> two words. Eat eat me. <laughs> nice. I had to ask. All right. Suck it, Steve. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna go with uh, the peacocks. I think that one's the, the fake. Okay. Oh, boy. So, Steve think it's number one, that the peacock feather one, and uh, Rebecca and Evan think it's the tuatata, number two. Right. So let's start with let's start mm-hmm. with number three, shall we? Okay, we number shall. three. Exposure to levels of radon gas reduces the risk of lung cancer by as much as 60%. That is science. Wow. Uh, this is a study published in the March issue of the Journal of Health Physics. Uh, one thing I kind of removed from that the title was th- low levels. Low and, levels uh, of radon gas. It, it was. It was. But even that, you would think, I think would would you would would have given you pause. Homeopathic uh, levels. Not that low. You know, the, check. Well, yeah. Would, wait. Let's run with that. Let's run with that because this is what this is what struck me when I read read about this. It said this was the first study to observe a statistically significant hormetic effect of low level radon exposure. Now, toxins and other environmental stressors, including radiation, that have a beneficial effect at very low doses are said to exhibit uh, horme- hormesis. 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 Yeah, that sounds that sounds that sounds better. Hormesis. Scientists believe that the low doses of toxin may stimulate repair mechanisms in cells. So we'll put a link to that. Now that man, what, what do you think of when you read that? Bam, homeopathy. Yeah, mm-hmm. although- I never heard of that um, of that effect. And I'm I'm just surprised that homeopaths haven't taken this. Uh, hormetic effect and just run with yeah, it. Yeah, because you require low that, levels, not zero levels, which is what you get in homeopathy. Yeah, not no levels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that. Yeah, that's obvious. I just seem to think though that that they would just take that and uh, and still and so and still run with that. But so it was low levels. They have to be low levels, of course. But still, sixty percent. Uh, that was quite quite impressive. Um, let's see. We shall now go to. Maybe let's try one. Male peacock feathers fail to impress females, according to a study. Science. Wow. This is science. Oh, the discovery. Again, I say, suck it. Steve. Yes, yeah, Steve. That was that was the classic. That is the classic example of sexual selection, and that's a and that's a one thing that that really makes it striking. So let me give you some details about this. Uh, the discovery made by Mariko. Takashashi, a researcher in the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Tokyo, shatters a long-held belief that male peacock feathers evolved in response to female mate choice. The researchers studied a free-ranging population of Indian peafowl and found that male vocalations appear to do a better job of grabbing female attention than their visually screaming attire. Uh, I also have some extra stuff here saying that uh, that was interesting. Peacock trains, I guess they call them trains, peacock trains are are controlled by the female hormone estrogen rather than testosterone. It is the absence of estrogen in the male that produces the train rather than the presence of testosterone. Traits traits under the control of estrogen are usually very poor indicators of phenotypic 
and genotypic uh, condition. Um, so that's what that's what I have on that. Now the article also did say that this is going to be very controversial. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily wipe out the whole idea that that they evolved through sexual selection. Um, this is going to rock the peacockology. <laughs> you got world. it. So it's their voice, the the, the sound that they make is, coming is out a peacock so, monthly. Is it better but, is more attractive to the female than than the feathers. Yeah, there was there's also some talk in the uh, in the article about these. Um, what do they refer to them as? The the, the shaking. Uh, the peacocks would would shake, shiver. I think they call them shiver a, a bit when the peahens would would walk around them, and the shivering uh, produced a, a a type of noise that may perhaps the peahen <laughs> found appealing, or I'm not sure what kind of effect it would have. But just the the, the noise of the fe- of the feathers kind of moving together. Um, but still, that's not a visual thing. So, so this might evolve and this might be struck down at some point. But this is what th- this one study did show. So, so number two, that means number two, Tuatara reptile declared the slowest evolving animal is fiction. Congratulations, Evan and Rebecca. Actually, the Tuatara was I right? Was it Tom Cruise? Uh, the, Tom Cruise was not mentioned in the article, but they did say that the Tuatara is actually the fastest evolving animal. So I just did a complete reversal of that. It said that um, although these reptiles have remained largely physically unchanged during very long periods of evolution, the researchers found the animals are evolving at a DNA level faster than any other animal. When David Lambert of the Allen Wilson Center, Massey University, analyzed mitochondrial DNA sequences from 60, 650 to 8,000 year old Tuatara remains and compared them with those of living uh, specimens, they found that the reptile is evolving almost 10 times as fast as the average animal. Incredible. Wow. Good for it. So, <laughs> you go to Atata. Crap, because I read that study and I remembered it wrong. Oh, Steve. Yeah, don't you hate oh. that? That's Welcome to my memory. world. Okay, I know that one's right, <laughs> so I had to ch- choose between the other two. But I, re- yep. I don't know why I remember that the other way. Maybe because I was thinking uh, yep. they are the, uh, morphologically, they have been very stable over a very long time. In fact, right. they are the only, the only reptile in their order. They're, they're, they're in they're their, their own order. By themselves. Right. That's right. Wow, it's Steve. amazing how much re- you know about the them. Reason. I know. You would think I would have gotten that one right. <laughs> amazing how you didn't get that right. The reason you failed wow. to remember is because you didn't take your ginkgo biloba. <laughs> and also, I've heard that it, memories are fallible. That's true. You know, I've heard that. <laughs> Steve, <laughs> Steve, join the club. Sometimes having a little knowledge is a bad thing. <laughs> Go ignorance. <laughs> you can't, you know. Uh, well, good job, guys. Thank well you. Well done, Bob. I am out of here. Good job, Bob. Well Damn, done. that takes a long time. Steve, Jesus. <laughs> the prep work? <laughs> Christ. You, you, you got to find, you know, you try to find just the right one, you know, ones that that, that don't sound plausible. <laughs> and then you got to find one that sounds plausible so that you could reverse it to make it sound implausible like the other two. And it just takes forever. Oh, well. It's a hard knock life. Yep. <laughs> Evan, do you have a quote for us this week? I like the Hippocrates one. There are, in fact, two things, science and opinion. The former begets knowledge, the latter ignorance. Mm-hmm. Spoken by Hippocrates. Many, many... It's my opinion that that was awesome. Many, many I moons ago. I think it's ago. pronounced Hippocrates. Hippocrates, yes. Yeah. Hippocrates. In, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I think, right? Or Jay's Excellent Adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Jay's Excellent Adventure. Oh. Jay will be back <laughs> next week. I was so great. Good. He will. Plato. 
He's not quitting like Rebecca. <laughs> it's tough being the only funny one. <laughs> if if there was any confusion uh, based upon Rebecca's blog yesterday, Rebecca announced that oh, she yeah. was leaving the SGU Suckers. to go to the um, Mysterious Universe podcast. Uh, of course, that, that, that blog was posted on April 1st. Man, talk about science or fiction. Right. Yeah. That combined with the fact that she's happily on it. our podcast this week should be enough to explain what went yeah. on there. <laughs> I wouldn't say happily, but I'm here. <laughs> grumpily. <laughs> hey, but grumpily on the podcast Only because this week. Bob tripled my salary. Tripled. <laughs> tripled. Good work, Bob. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks, Thank Doctor. Thanks California. for taking up the hey, slack. Good this episode. Week. Yep, good episode. Thanks for thanks for the guys did extra work this week because uh, because I'm busy here in California. It was Bob. Bob picked up the slack. Well done, Bob. It was pretty much yep, out, Bob. Bob. Thank good you. job, Thank Bob. You. And Steve, uh, good luck with the rest of your trip Thank in you. California. Yeah, can't wait to hear the report next week when it's all. We, I will. Done. Yeah, I want a full Got a few report. more days of shooting ahead of us, but uh, it's it's going to be fun, and I'll give you guys the full report next week. Cool. And tell Yao I said I hi. Yeah. I will. Tell everyone we said hi, please. We're admirers of all of them. I will. I will pass it along. I have to say that uh, Ashley, my ten-year-old daughter, was so excited to hear that Yao Man uh, might be on the podcast. I thought he might. We might get him in tonight, but uh, it didn't work out. And she she promised me to wake her up if he actually was yeah. on it. So give her give Yao Man a, a hello from we, Ashley. We will get all of all of the people on the podcast. You know, over the next few months. Oh yeah. Just. I'm working yeah. off my laptop from the hotel room, and it just was not technically possible to have someone else on this week. But we will we'll get them all on over over the coming months. Awesome. So th- good night, guys. Thanks again, and until next week, this is your skeptic's guide to the universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. Problem.